Don't forget that the Cyclist Magazine podcast isn't just a podcast. The clue is in the magazine bit. We were a magazine first and we still are. We're a monthly magazine. And right now you can subscribe for three issues for £5. Just check out cyclist.co.uk. And there's also a really quite impressive little offer at the moment that we've got running, which is subscribe and get a sportful hot pack gilet, which is a very, very light gilet, which apparently, I know I've got the jacket version, and that had 60 kilometers of yarn in it because that's how thin the thread is. And this is a gilet version. So it's probably, you know, it hasn't got the arms, but it's probably got about 40K in it. But they're really, really good. They're weatherproof, windproof, all that jazz. I can absolutely vouch for it. It's a £75 free gift for subscribing, ladies and gents. So check out cyclist.co.uk and subscribe to our lovely magazine now. Welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast and welcome to 2024. It's a leap year, so if you have your birthday on February the 29th, congratulations, you're 25% younger than everybody else. But this year that will be recognised. Emma, your birthday's not on the 29th of February, is it? It's not, no, it's the 15th of April, I have you know. But I don't know anyone that's actually born on the 29th of February, do you? Uh, I no. Do you know what? I've never actually, I've I've never actually come across anybody. And statistically, I think you're basically as likely to be born on any other day in the year, except for obviously the 29th, because there are fewer 29ths in the year. So I don't know. There's what eight billion people now in the world. Someone's got to be able to write in and say I was born on the 29th, and they can tell us their experiences. Because I feel like as a child, that would make you both feel very special, but sometimes overlooked. Yeah, every three years, a little bit overlooked. I wonder if you celebrate the day before or the day after when it's not a leap year. I just think you just don't get a birthday. It's great for the parents. It's very cheap. Oh, I see. Yeah, you just get cancelled that day. Yeah. Your birthday. Sorry, not this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, come, come back in three years' time. So anyway, 2024, it's January. I'm looking out of my window. Do you know what? It snowed yesterday, actually. I was just about to kind of go on a scale of 1 to 10, how jaded did you feel in January? But actually, yesterday, <laughs> yesterday was like a fairy tale. There was a little... It was. It was lovely. Did it snow where you were? Yeah, real fair few flurries of snow. And I have to say, I was like a little child. I was very, very excited. It is a beautiful thing. We look out of the window and you just got some snow on the, the roofs of the cars. I did love it. So actually, January's kind of been okay so far, but... I don't know about you, but I have done zero proper cycling miles. I've been out on a bike to like go somewhere, but I just haven't actually gone cycling, which is a terrible thing to admit to. I uh, yeah, I mean, I haven't really done very much, and I'm oh, I don't know. I just struggle with putting on all that kit. That's <laughs> yeah. the bit that it, honestly is my biggest barrier. It's the bit trying to like get those overshoes over my shoes just drives me insane. Um, and yeah, all the layers it takes seriously long time to get ready to go out and you've got to recycle yourself up as well and it's cold but I'm really looking forward to the longer days that is you know more sunlight that is a bit of me well exactly um if anyone picks up cyclist magazine issue 149 which is going to come out in a week or so brilliant Ed's letter from my boss who pays my bills so well done Pete thank you you're a wonderful inspiration mentor and journalist <laughs> but anyway Pete points out that there's a difference between the astrological um, winter and the kind of calendar winter astrological winter is basically we're already halfway through more than that because that's kind of winter solstice being mm. the 21st of December um, which marks the halfway point so we're kind of we've broken the back of it you won't be putting on overshoes for too much longer but I do know what you mean and just off the top of my head I reckon you've probably got you've got a base layer a jersey bib tights a jacket 
socks, overshoes, shoes, gloves, possibly a hat under your helmet and a helmet and sunglasses. That's 11 things you've got to put on. Too many. It's just nuts. It's too many. I've got to say one of the best things ever invented was the onesie, which (laughs) Castelli used to make, and I don't know if they still make it, and Rafi used to make a onesie. And it's like a wetsuit. And you just put the whole thing on, plus plus nothing, because it's got obviously a seat pad in it, and off you go. That... Oh, well, I need more one of those. Yeah, I need more of those. <laughs> it just needed integrated boots, like a proper dry suit, and then you'd be well away. It'd be sorted. Yeah. Oh. but you know, I've already talked for too long. We did say before we came on air we we're going to keep this short because we've got a double hitter episode today. Um, first up, we've got Mark Sutton, who is the editor of Cycling Electric, which is our sister brand, which is, as you might have guessed, all about e-bikes. But Mark also has uh, a wealth of knowledge and experience in the kind of business side of the cycling industry. He worked for Bike Biz and then helped start Cycling Industry News. So we're asking Mark just what the hell is going on in the world of cycling at the moment, because I think we get fed all kinds of stories about the doom and gloom out there, the economic downturn, big companies going bust. So we're trying to get a bit of a kind of barometer from Mark. Then the second half we have, and this is going to be the segue to end all segues, Emma, who do we have? (laughs) We have Andrew Phillips, who is the latest race director at Lost Dot. Lost Dot uh, organised self-supported ultra-distance cycling, including the most famous, the Transcontinental, of whom we've had a couple of guests on the podcast, actually, that have done the Transcontinental off the top of my head, I'm thinking Emily Chapel. Indeed, yeah. Super interesting. And yeah, so Andrew is going to introduce us to this new race they've got coming up this year. Um, and he also talks about, I guess, the insane organisation that goes into planning a race, off-road race, shall we say. I don't want to spoil it just yet. Um, and all the planning uh, and everything that goes into around that. So yeah, it's going to be a good one. It's going to be a good one. So we'll get straight into it. First up with Mark Sutton and our chat about the state of the cycling industry. So welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, Mr. Mark Sutton, editor of our sister title, Cycling Electric, but also a man whose background goes much beyond bikes, or at least much beyond the kind of just purely consumer side of things, into the business side of things. You used to work for Bike Biz, is that right, Mark? Uh, Bike Biz for about nine years, um, and then launched Cycling Industry News uh, after after leaving there. That was about another seven years. So, yeah, fairly deep on the industry side. Um, and then I've kept up the boring habit of keeping uh, tabs on the trade side of things ever since I left. It seems to govern everything that we do, and, and e- e-bikes um, uh, are leading the charge uh, in, in, in industry terms at the moment. So uh, I I keep I keep a tab on, on the data. Well, absolutely. And I would say it's it's just Mark is just the person that we want to talk to. We do this a lot in the office. We've had this chat a lot in the office. What is going on in the bike industry at the moment? Uh, I think you wanted an economist, but you've got me. So <laughs> let's let's start from a few years ago. Pre-pandemic bike industry was was not in the best shape. Actually, there was more more shops closing than opening. It was a a lot slower pace than it is is now, but nonetheless. Things things were slow. Um, we'd come off the back of a well, the road boom was actually probably many years earlier, or twenty twelve through to maybe twenty fifteen, and ever since then it was it was just just flat and, and, and declining. But then e bikes started to lift things up from a very low base, 
Um, and then COVID came along and it just changed everything, accelerated everything. And, and yeah, we, we ended up with a situation where there was a big spike in demand. You know, we had unique, I think they call it a black swan event, basically, you know, uh, conditions that have never existed before where the government permitted it both as exercise and transport. And so there was a whole bunch of economic stimulus as well. You know, people got uh, a little bit of cash in their pocket. Um, some people were furloughed and, and really going mad, myself included. So obviously we went out on our bikes. We maybe, if we were buying anything, we bought bike stuff. Uh, and so bike shops uh, took that demand and fed it up the chain. Um, and perhaps they said, oh, I've got two units of demand. But they said that's a three different suppliers. And so they have six units of demand communicated and suppliers then took that figure and extrapolated it a bit further up to the manufacturers. Uh, and so you maybe you had two units of real demand and you ended up with, I don't know, 100 units of, uh, of demand up, up the chain. The manufacturers just, you know, went, went one turbo on it and uh, on, on, on assumed demand. And, of course, that made the lead times of things stretch out quite significantly uh, so things weren't getting delivered particularly quickly obviously production lines were on and off um, in in the far east things take quite a while to to ship as well um, so what might have been a few months lead time before went to you know year and a half um, by the time a year and a half has passed the whole picture is is different we're in a cost of living crisis and no one's got any money and the demand that began as two is is perhaps now one so in essence, shops and suppliers have sat on might be a few years worth of stock, or they were. I think things are improving a bit now. But um, yeah, very, very low demand, high amounts of stock, which means everybody has to discount that stock to get rid of it. So it's kind of like almost going into a restaurant as a customer, saying that you're really hungry, and then, then someone running away being like, don't worry, I'll just get you everything. And then it all appears on your table as the consumer. And you're like, yeah, I don't know. actually. I don't want that. But then simultaneously on another table, somebody says they want everything and then the kitchen can't keep up. And so no food is coming out and everyone's waiting. So you've got this strange concoction of incredible demand, which is the COVID time, right? When everybody suddenly decided they just had to cycle. But the factories and the supply chains are kind of turned off. So then the demand sits there and is assumed that when everything routes back up again, you know, we come out of the pandemic people still want all that stuff. But it turns out, for lots of reasons, they don't. So then suddenly the people in the middle, which would be, I guess, distributors, bike shops, Wiggle, for example, they're sitting on lots of stock. They essentially can't shift. Is that kind of about, have I got the kind of basics there? Yeah, that's a good analogy. Uh, the, the Wiggle situation was was marginally different to some of the others, uh, other situations that are emerging okay. at the moment. How would that be so? How is, how is the wiggle different? In the, in the sense that they probably could have battled through the hard times because they had support from quite a, a large institutional investor. But the property market was, was his main investment focus um, and that also went, uh, went sideways. So investors will tend to cut their losses and, you know, protect their main investments and I think that that's more than likely what what happened and so Wiggle had 150 million worth of lifeline cash uh, that was promised and I, th I think there's some some legal argument against 
it being pulled in quite the way it did. I don't know much, too much more on that, but it, in essence, they had their bank loan just just whipped out from underneath them. And you, you, if you if you don't have cash at hand, then you've got a real problem. And how do you think the wiggle situation has impacted current cycling distributors and brands? Has it made them think twice? Uh, so there was some documents emerged the other day from the financial folk dealing with the administration, sort of showing who the who the creditors were, the, the people that owed owed money, and and I think you know it's common knowledge now. There's some stories out there as to you know just how much some of these suppliers were owed, whether whether some of that's been paid. Um, you know, each, each case will be assessed individually and, and you know what what cash remains will, will, will be paid but i think the hmrc certainly will be up the front of the queue the staff um also uh, that would have been made redundant will be up the front of the queue to to get some of that cash before suppliers more than likely and would you how would you kind of start looking at unpacking explaining you know this idea that as much as there has been this huge spike in demand post-COVID, or during COVID, sorry, and then a lag after that, there's still lots of people cycling. As you say, you know, from your point of view with e-bikes, e-bikes are huge. They make up the majority of most bike shops business on the continent. And I think it's becoming that way um, over here. It's a booming part of the industry. And that's because people are seeing cycling much more again as utility than before a lot of, I think, how we saw it from Cyclist Magazine point of view was as a sport and recreation. So there still seems to be just a general appetite for cycling that wasn't the case maybe 20 years ago. Certainly, you know, when I'm thinking like being 18, 19 and 2000, people weren't really, everyone wanted cars and motorbikes, people weren't really into cycling. So why would a big parent investor, why do you think they decide, hang on, I don't want to put my money into into cycling anymore because it seems like cycling is still relatively buoyant as a kind of concept or, or thing that people are buying into perhaps not at the twelve thousand pound specialized s works tarmac level but just for your average person they're into bikes they're using bikes a lot so i i think and this is quite hard to comprehend for for probably most of us but the, these investors are just operating in different leagues of the amount of money that and, and property wealth portfolio that they they have uh, and so in the instance of wiggle like i said it was a, it was a guy who had a lot of property uh, and that market was crashing and, and they do tend to just very swiftly cut their losses to to recoup money to to prop up other things uh, it's it's it feels very personal, but I'm sure, you know, uh, to, obviously to everyone that lost their jobs, it feels horribly personal. But um, that's the way the investment market tends to work, is, is that they will cut their losses quite quickly and prop up uh, the, main, the main things. That, you, you know, for example, if, if we got another financial crash, you'd see the government step in and prop up the banks, like, like happened in 2008. It's, it's, uh, it's a smaller scale version of that, but it's... Um, it's just just seems to be how things work in that world. Um, I, when when investors suddenly flocked, and it is a very sudden flock, you can see it if uh, you look at the share prices of various um, companies. Uh, it was pretty much March of 2020 that all of a sudden, you know, the government made that announcement about bike shops, and then all of a sudden, the share prices of a lot of these companies just shoot up. I was looking at some uh, this week. You know, I think I think the Tandem Group went up sixfold in, in, in a few months, and then came back down the same amount to 
I think it's almost identical now to what it was pre-COVID. Um, but, but you know, sixfold up, sixfold down. Uh, that sort of shows you how quickly the money came in and, and then back out of the market. Investors do tend to front run things as well. So they will have, as soon as the government uh, got the vaccines, that that's the end of that event for the bike industry, basically. It's, well, things are going to go back to normal. That's that's a, a leading indicator for them to just be like, okay, right, well, the, the good times of the, this particular market, probably over for now. It, it may take long for a bit, but, you know, the money gets pulled out. Gosh, yeah, that's, that's pretty intense. But, you know, as we look towards the future, will there be more companies like Wiggle? that are struggling? Can we expect more doom and gloom? What are your predictions for the future? Um, that's a really big question. Uh, I, th- I think it, in many ways, actually, uh, in Europe, 2023, in the background, had, had some, some good things happening, particularly on legislation. Uh, the, I think it's European Cyclist Federation and, and, and the group around that have managed to make some quite decent legislative gains um, on behalf of the bike industry, whereby uh, building construction will have to have cycling infrastructure put put in alongside it. That, that sounds like a small thing, but end-to-end infrastructure is the main thing that drives the uptake of cycling. You know, if, uh, the, the main reason women don't cycle is because it's considered unsafe. It's not considered unsafe in, in places like Holland, Germany, because um, they tend to build infrastructure when they build roads. And so their rates don't look anything like ours. You know, we've languished at about 2% modal share for cycling in this country for decades. But, you know, look across the water to Holland and there are some places that, uh, you know, it's 50%, places like Utrecht and and, and places like that where there's just cycle paths everywhere. So it it becomes normalised and so it becomes part of the transport culture. Uh, So for the year ahead, I think the big prediction is, is... if the election goes as expected, you more than likely will start to see some legislative catch up here. It will probably take a few years. Nothing moves quickly in government, particularly if they change the transport ministers every five seconds like <laughs> the Conservative government has. If, if the country gets back on stable footing after the election, then the bike industry can start to look forward and make some better forecasts for the future, I think. Because I was going to say, do you feel like you've seen this before in some sense? And I don't know, in terms of like your timeline working bike beers and cycling industry news, how that will have overlapped or not with 2008 and the you know global financial crash. But it seems like 2008, the, the Western world at least was on its knees. Four years later, you've got, you know, Bradley Wiggins is the most famous man in England or in, in, in the UK. And, you, you know, Everyone wants a bike, and they don't just want a bike; they want a Pinarello Dogma. So that's that's a fairly short amount of time, and that I think is probably the time when cycling has been the most popular, probably since like I don't know the eighteen nineties when people really loved bicycles in America um, to race on. So, do you think that that could could be something we we we're currently experiencing? Maybe a, a bit of that bust, and then we'll get that boom. Or is what you're saying more that? We're not really going to go back there in terms of the sports side of things, but we might get back there in terms of the global popularity of cycling as transport, and that's where the industry is now going. Yeah, I think we're going to get a steady rise from probably the tail end of this year on on all fronts. Um, We we have to remember that cycling is a bit of a junction of uh, things like 
technology, health, clean transport. You, you know, that was the reason the investors came in the first place was because, it, you know, it actually re- um, represented a, a bit of um, positive change. And, you, you know, the as demographics age through, the younger generation care more about sustainability and, and being green. Um, they're in record numbers not going for driving licences. Uh, the, the young the, the youth coming through, that is. Reasons probably for that are is, is can they afford an electric car? I, I don't know many millennials that can, so many Gen Z that will be able to. I, I'm not sure. Uh, there is also a tendency of that generation not to own things, but to, to share and subscribe. Uh, and so you'll probably see things like subscription model, e-bikes. Uh, and, and you, you know, at the moment, we've got cheaper bikes than we've ever had and probably will ever have if there's if there's ever a time to buy a bike and actually make that dent in your travel card cost or your fuel cost it really is now it's just unfortunately i think the cost of living crisis is 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 quite sharp at the moment so you know people will want to feed their families before they buy a bike but you know a bike can represent quite a significant uh, transport saving and and yes i think the industry recognizes now that the enthusiast era is probably you know it will, it will exist but it's probably past its best um the electric bike represents a lot of new customers a lot of new attitudes to cycling it was one of the rare things where the elderly adopted the technology before the youth you know and actually that's trickled down and they're becoming shall we say cool because they, they look quite nice nowadays you can barely tell they are an e-bike but they encourage you to get out more and ride for longer. And, you know, cargo is a whole new segment now since since the motor. It wasn't really doing all that much before before electric motors were fitted to them. But now, you know, that's entirely new business for, for, for the industry and uh, an entirely new outlook for parents that want to show up at the school gates and uh, businesses that want to avoid ULEs and things like that. There's something I wanted just to um, pick back up that you mentioned earlier, Mark. It's the idea of bigger outside investors having a massive input into our cycling industry. To what extent is that the case? Because I think a lot of people will consider the cycling industry, number one, to maybe be quite a kind of like a closed thing, a kind of self-supporting ecosystem. And typically, from a road cycling point of view, companies have been they're kind of independent type they're, i mean they're not independent per se but you know the name on the down tube might be the name of an old racer the family that you know you've got shimano on the one hand sure massive corporation also does fishing reels and things like that but then campagnolo is considered you know that's a family business or pinarello dogma that's headed up by fausto pinarello he is the guy on the down tube his father started the company is it actually just a kind of illusion that cycling has these independent brands and actually it's just propped up by the bigger world. Hence, cycling cannot be impervious to everything else going on. Or is cycling also still, in some senses, able to be self-sufficient? No, cycling can't be impervious to economic conditions. We're, we're quite a, a small industry and, you know, if you compare us, it's the nearest comparison to make the automotive industry. They are sat on immense cash stockpiles so they can they can ride out storms a lot better than than we can uh, we, we've got a bit of a, one of our problems actually during covid was that our supply chain ha- was exposed to a degree to be a little bit disorganized um we don't 
tend to communicate as an industry who's got what level of stock and so therefore things that have happened most recently there's no way of avoiding them until such time there's more collaboration in the industry i i don't know about the 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 politics between brands and things like that whether there's anything stopping that like you say there's a lot of personalities family businesses corporates it's it's a big mix i I think when the, the investors um came in perhaps they didn't understand the complexity of the product that they were dealing with you know this this is an e-bike is a consumer electronics product. It's also a bicycle. And there's not many products that you would, not many products like that, that you would take out and thrash about in the elements um, and expect it not to need servicing very regularly. And I think in the case of Van Moof in particular, that was part of the downfall there is that, you know, you sold all these wonderful bikes and, and you know, they were leading in in, in in a few ways but um they they were exposed for for, for just not having the backup service and it, it caused a, a, a bit of a, a snowball of problems for them so i'm not sure if i've answered the question there but i might have added some <laughs> some extra knowledge <laughs> no you have pointed out you know you, you reminded me of van Moof, which is another company which there was a point where they were you know very slick looking. If anyone hasn't seen Van Moves, I mean, if anyone doesn't know who they, what Van Move bikes look like, I suspect they've seen them. They're very slick looking bikes with integrated front and rear lights. And some of them, the old ones used to have a, a lock that you could pull out of the top tube. They were very kind of, and there, a lot of them were um, later on, they were e-bikes. And that was a big company that then got a bigger injection of cash. And suddenly in central London, I remember seeing billboards with advertising Van Moof, which was to my mind, just, crazy because there wasn't enough money in cycling to make a billboard ad Mm. how on earth did a company like that suddenly you know like a supernova go so high and then just capitulate almost overnight because yeah i remember seeing them in the guardian they were there were adverts in newspapers for them there was stuff on like how great a business model it was what did they do wrong (laughs) uh so i think um it was at least a hundred million dollars of of cash which you know, going back many years before that was as good as unheard of. There's, there's still only a few that have had um, that level of backing. Uh, and when you have cash injected that quickly, investors want to, you know, start scaling. And actually scale, was, as perhaps demonstrated by Wiggle also, is, is not necessarily your friend when the, when the demand suddenly stops. You know, if you're the biggest and, and the, the most heavily stocked, that's great if the demand's there, but if the demand's not there, then you're actually in a very vulnerable position and you're actually at the top of the chain in, in starting the, the need for discounting. Discounting existed before this. Definitely, we have a bit of a, a strange culture of, of discounting. In, in um, You know, I used to mystery shop bike shops in, in the UK and sometimes I'd walk in and uh, they'd offer me a discount before me asking or, or indicating that I wanted one. We just have a strange culture of discounting, but that's nobody's friend in this. The whole aim of business is, is to make enough money to put food on the table. And at the moment, because there is, everyone's caught a cold, basically, off of off of uh, one one big brand starts discounting, then the, the rivals have to. Uh, and it might be that you have great cash flow, you've, you've run your business very well, but if everybody around you is doing that, Who's going to pay full price when your rivals are, are discounting? So it is a vulnerable position at the moment. 2023, I think, will go down as probably the worst year the bike industry's ever had. <laughs> uh, wow. Which means next year will be better, right? 
Yeah, 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 absolutely. Now, this discounting thing is strange. I mean, just just as a consumer, you know, in anything, even if I'm in the supermarket, I'm not expecting to pay full price anymore, even if I know that maybe that thing's been on sale for whatever the requisite thing is, 28 days at that price to be able to then say it used to cost 10 quid, now it's seven pounds. And that's it's always been seven quid. It was just 10 quid for a while. There's still that sense that we don't buy things full price anymore. But is that a slightly kind of, yeah, it's, it sounds like that's quite an irresponsible place for for everyone to be in because it has this race to the bottom. But particularly with cycling, am I right in thinking it means that if you're a bike shop, you put in your order for, I don't know, 20 new Madones in 2024 and those come in. And if you haven't sold through your last 20 Trek Madones, then you're stuck in a situation where your new ones have to cost top dollar because you've got the margin and that's the new bike but if your other ones are costing the same amount of money people are going to buy the new ones because people want the newest thing but if the other ones are too cheap then they're going to go for last year's model because it's significantly cheaper so you're is that how your brands end up sitting on lots of unsold stock because the new stuff comes in more quickly and they can shift the old stuff out yeah yeah that's that's the mind-blowing situation that we're, we're, we're kind of in um yeah, I mean, the, the, the state of play in the market at the moment is, like I say, that um, bike shops are, are probably carrying, say, say, twice the level of stock uh, that they would in a pre-pandemic time. But, you know, particularly things that were in demand during COVID, key lines uh, and, and certain bikes. So, yeah, when you've got that situation, the discounting need is um, all the more pressing and you, you're unable to really accept future stock. And so future stock will then also join the discounting pile, but orders will get cancelled up the supply chain. Also, you know, in the midst of all this and, and slightly prior to, I, I did catch wind on, on many fronts that, that shops were having quite aggressive terms put on them by by some suppliers. Um, you must take this or you will lose the brand from your store, which is is not a great not a great or sustainable way for us to work as a supply chain. Um, but it shows the difficulties and the stresses. Everybody's job is to, to, to sell, sell, sell. Uh, and, you know, maybe we, we're not great at forecasting in this industry. Um, and, and, you know, we're, UK in particular, as an outlier country to the rest of Europe, we're, we're, yeah, we're the basket case of Europe in this thing. So it, it, the suppliers that are supplying us from Europe are, Understandably, some of them are now kind of withdrawing a little bit. Brexit has, I'm going to mention it because it really has not helped things. I, I don't know still anybody that can really tell us a reason that that made sense. But here we are. I don't want to spiral your podcast into, into politics too far. But um, it, it has factually, you know, I, I used to do market reports when I was at Cycling Industry News. Uh, and I'd speak to CEOs of companies. I'd, I'd, I'd speak to Occasionally, I'd interview you know MPs and things that were, were delivering the cycling policy. Nobody really wanted that outcome, um, or at least very quickly after the last few years, they no longer want that outcome from a business perspective. Yet, as an outcome, we are stuck with. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> from a business perspective, there's there's obviously more to it than just business. But um, from a business perspective, that was our largest trading partner. Yeah, fair. And Mark, just from a consumer perspective there, talking about discounts, if you're a consumer and you're, you know, you want your, you love cycling, you want to help the cycling industry, are you better off, you know, buying something that's discounted or 
buying something that isn't? Where is a better place to put your money as a consumer that wants to help the cycling industry? Yeah, discounts aren't healthy for, for anybody. Um, uh, you know, if, if we all discount them, then very quickly, I guess, you, you'll just let the likes of Amazon just, just consume every business going more, more quickly. Because, you know, if, if, if independent shops aren't making money, our, our high streets die. Bike shops have been very resilient because, you know, we're we're service industry, we're transport, we're, we're a leisure, we're not something that until more recent times, maybe the likes of Amazon has wanted to touch because it comes with so much after sales. Um, so, you know, bike shops have been relatively resilient on the high street, despite the fact that the overall trend has been been down for a while now. That, as I say, it's very, very difficult to make money off of bike sales. And, and so one notable trend is that bike shops have pivoted more and more towards the service side uh, and, you know, uh, other non-traditional offshoots margins on on bikes in particular especially since uh consumer direct trading really took off have been squeezed from you know maybe 40 down to to 30 for for example but you know there's there's a whole bunch of things that can very quickly erode your margin discounting being a huge one that's that's a really interesting one and a bit of a tangent but it just reminds me of that question that i often get asked by people who know me and know what job i do why are bikes so expensive there's if we had the european infrastructure we would then spend more money on our bikes right i i, I can't emphasize enough how that is the primary factor that will lift the market as and when that happens we've seen it in london london's now rush hour traffic it, the the main traffic form is is cyclists was that the case 10 years ago absolutely not and what's changed it's the infrastructure on the ground um and and some of the policy i i know there's probably a lot of people that are not fans of low traffic neighborhoods and ULES and things like that but these are all part of um drivers of change in, in behavior and, and making things a bit more sustainable but the bottom line in that argument is in my mind it's nothing really to do with clean air or anything like that it's it's simple mathematics london you can't make the roads much bigger, if at all. You know, the buildings are where they are. So what, you're going to just let larger vehicles just, you, you know, keep expanding in the city centre? It, it doesn't make any sense. You, uh, I think in the, in the space of a few decades, cars have, have got about 30 centimetres wider. So both sides of the road, 60 centimetres of space, is, you know, is, is gone total. And you want more and more of these larger vehicles. That's how the city is going to operate. No, it, it, it just mathematically can't. There's there's immovable boundaries here. Vehicles have to get smaller and more efficient. For for the most part, a bike is carrying the same load as, as a car in, in person terms. You know, a lot of cars are carrying around, if, if you want to view it this way, um, to, to the leather seats and, and a, a, the sofa in the back and then, you know, potentially some more behind that. A, a bike... Is, is still carrying the same one person for the most part. Yeah. And I know that's simplifying the discussion a bit, but if you just think about this in, in terms of what can go through the city funnel, cyclists are a grain of sand and cars are peas. <laughs> I like that. That's why those, if anyone's seen those, um, those big bollards, that are those like pinch points in roads that are just immovable objects and they're always scratched and I always just think that's because people's cars are too wide. And also, people don't have that much spatial awareness. Sometimes, just saying, as a cyclist, sometimes cars don't have that much spatial awareness. Who knew? It does make me think the best place to put my money 
in the future is in the manufacture of the blue paint that they paint cycle lanes with. Because it sounds like that's where <laughs> things are headed. But as far as you're concerned, Mark, where would you put your money in the cycling industry as a gambling man? Let's go with 2023 having been the worst year. Let, let's genuinely look at 2023. It's the worst that I've ever known. And certainly speaking to CEOs that have been through the, the road boom, the mountain bike boom, the BMX boom, all of those had busts and they've all said that this is by far the worst. So let's let's assume that 2023 was a bottom of sorts and that 2024 is going to have plenty of, of hangovers. Uh, I think, you know, you've got a lot of boutique brands Orange bikes, for example, this week uh, looking like they're calling in administrators. So picking a winner for the year ahead or for the years ahead, it, it's really got to be those that didn't overcommit, are sat on cash and, and ready to invest when things lift again. Really, I think this year is just weathering the storm a little bit, bit more. So it's whoever comes out the other side of that, and I expect it will be those that have their supply chains in order and, and have a a moat of sorts, a, a competitive advantage. I, I think brands that are, are more value-driven than volume-driven because let's take Pinarello, for example. You know, the Pinarello customer, it, it, they might be part of the 10% or the 1%, but they're, they're still very much, they're fine. The rest of us are the ones that are, are, we, we couldn't afford a Pinarello in the first place. Uh, and, and so now I, I, I think... Yeah, it, it would be it would be a brand like that that's that's value driven and has a unique proposition that will, it, for the short term at least, appear to be the the more successful. And then in the long term, I, th- I think we just again, I'm the editor of Cycling Electric. I'm going to be biased, yeah. but I would I would I would say that electric bikes are going to play for the first time a massive part of the the, the genuine transport ecosystem. And and the more accessible that comes, you know costs and, and performance trickle down over time as you'll see with shimano shram whatever the, the technology trickles down the product will improve at lower price points and it will be the lower price points with this uk audience that begin to turn the tide i, I think i think there's uh, a notion that once 25 percent of the population come round to an idea then actually you've crossed the tipping point and the rest of the population will will then follow which seems to have happened in Europe. I would say here we're probably more like a tenth of the population. So uh, the best is either ahead or we're never going to get there. (laughs) You almost had me feeling quite positive, Mark, and then you added that last little bit. (laughs) But no, you heard it here first. Who knew the future's e-bikes? Like a lot of riders, I've tried loads of training plans, but I often find them too rigid and complicated. But join is a bit different. You put in your availability to train each week and your goal, like riding the ATAP, for example, and then join reverse engineers a training plan specific to your needs. But the really smart thing is how join adapts your training plan as you go. So if you miss a session or you end up doing like a recovery ride or it's an interval day, then join retailers your training plan so you can still hit your goal. It's really simple to use and workout sync to everything from Garmin's and Wahoo's to Strava and Zwift. Or you can pair join to a power meter or smart trainer for instant workouts. Join comes as an app. And right now, listeners of the Cyclist Podcast can save a third on a six-month join subscription. So that's six months for the price of four. Just check out the link in our show notes and start training with join. 
Hello, lovely listeners. I just wanted to tell you that Cyclist isn't just a podcast. No, Cyclist is also a beautiful print magazine. It's packed full of all the best rides from around the world, the newest bikes and kit, and loads of in-depth articles featuring guests just like on today's show. So head on over to cyclist.co.uk slash subscriptions and check out our latest Cyclist magazine subscription offers. Oh, thank you very much from Mark Sutton. That was brilliant. And now for our second part of the podcast, please welcome to the podcast, Andrew Phillips, the race director of Lost Dot. Andrew, did you cycle to and from Rula? Did I see that on Instagram? Yeah, it was a combination of cycling, taking the train, the ferry. Uh, basically, I, I live in Italy, um, in southern Italy, and oh, um, nice. had to get back for Rula. Eurostar was incredibly expensive, so I ended up getting the train to Paris, cycling overnight from Paris to Dieppe, getting the boat from Dieppe, um, just at the start of storm, um, whatever it was, one of the unpronounceable storms. Oh, yeah. And then, um, and then yeah getting back to London, getting a night's sleep, being absolutely knackered, having having missed the night before, and then turning up to Rula, yeah, to launch the Accursed. So did you cycle back, though? That's always the thing. It's wonderful when I've, I've done this before. I'm like, I'll cycle somewhere. And then the idea of them repeating that journey in reverse to get home is just like, no, I can't do this. <laughs> so I did the similar kind of thing. I, um, I got a boat to Spain on the way back, um, cycled partway through Spain, then got train to Lyon, cycled through the Alps, then got a train from um, Geneva to Milan, and then back down again. So sort of hybrid um, hybrid bikepacking slash public transport trip. And how long did that take you? Uh, ooh, uh, on the way there, I guess it was two, two and a half days. And on the way back, maybe four days, five maybe. So about a week in total. Yeah, I, I sort of, you know, I have my laptop with me and I, I work as I go and I spend a day on the train. That's that's not a day wasted. And what, what bike do you ride? Because behind you, um, obviously we have eyes and anyone listening just has ears. They probably have eyes too, but they can't use them at this moment in time. You've got two <laughs> wonderful bikes, two very different bikes. One of them I noticed is maybe like a Tomasini or something, like an old steel Italian looking number with the fancy paintwork and some Vento. It's actually a Colnago, yeah. A Col- oh, wow beautiful and then next to that is something that looks a little bit more modern which i'm going to say is maybe a rondo uh no it's actually um it, it's not really anything it's an open mold carbon frame which i had sort of decaled up to my own specs and has the wheels of my own wheel company on it and um some apogee bags that's my endurance bike um so yeah that's that's the bike i was using uh it's it's sort of uh, it's kind of an all road bike. It's got clearance for um, maybe up to forty five mil uh, tires, and it's yeah, it's been my endurance bike for the last four years or something. So it's got a lot of kilometers on it, and um, it's kind of it's part of my uh, part of my body now. We've become molded <laughs> to each other. Was that the bike that you rode for the two volcano sprint when you won? Yes, yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a good combination of it's it's sort of it's fairly light, it's very robust. Um, yeah, and I'm just very comfortable on it. You know, it, I, I rode it last year as well on um, Transcontinental Number Eight, so ten days spending uh, eighteen, nineteen hours a day on the saddle. Yeah, it's um, 
it's a bike I'm very, very good friends with. <laughs> Got a fair few, fair few miles in it then. <laughs> and speaking of the Transcontinental, Andrew, you are one of the directors of Lost Dot who run Transcontinental, but also you've got a new race called The Accursed. Could you tell us about it, how it came about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you say, we've, we've got the Transcontinental and Transpyrenees already. Um, and uh, we wanted to do something a little bit different. We wanted to create an off-road race. We, and, and me in particular, um, really love uh, the Balkans, love riding our bikes in the Balkans. Um, and the Transcontinental sort of has spent a lot of time there over the years. Um, it's been sort of a key part of TCR routes. But it's kind of hard when you've got all these people going through on their, on their road bikes to really explore the area. And we always, you know, we like to push people to... Um, to leave the tarmac a bit um we get we get a lot of um we get a lot of feedback about uh about the kind of places people end up taking their road bikes on on tcr but this is really our opportunity to like explore off-road in the balkans properly and take you to places that you would not otherwise end up um we're really um working to take people off the off the beaten track we've spent so much time um scouring maps for the best routes so much time out there wrecking ourselves um filling in bits of the open street maps so that that flows through to commute um so that people can then actually know where they're going so really sort of building the whole race from scratch so that when people go there to ride um they will be doing something completely new and the route is just amazing if i even if i say so myself uh, it's um it's just stunning non-stop jaw-dropping landscapes uh amazing sweeping double track a little bit of hiker bike just enough to keep you um keep you interested and just landscapes that never stop changing so i'm i'm really really excited to uh get the race launched and, and get everyone riding there in may so that's the key difference between things that people will know Lost Dot and, and yourself for. So something like the Transcontinental, which is a checkpoint race, which is probably in some senses, you know, it's all going to be very hard, right? But in some senses, slightly easier perhaps to put together because you just have to go, guys, you have to go here, 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 and here. And then you're done. Go through, get stamped. And that, you know, it's up to you how you get there. Whereas crucially with the Accursed, it's going to be a prescribed route, which means that turn by turn, you have had to do it. How on earth do you, I know you just said, you know, in a very blasé way, oh yeah, we just went around and just rode there lots. But like, I find it difficult to plan a route from like London to Portsmouth. <laughs> How on earth do you ride across the Balkans? As you say, on gravel tracks, you know, these aren't even things that appear on most mapping services often. So how on earth did you do it? And how many times did you get lost? <laughs> yeah, it's a really good question. Um, so there's, I think there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I'll, I'll try not to um, spend the next three hours uh, talking about it. <laughs> but the, the, first, the first thing is that, um, yes, TCR is, is based on control points and small bits of parkour. That doesn't necessarily make it easier to plan. That just makes it difficult in a different way. So you've got to try and predict every route a rider might take basically because we could and may, maybe some races with less um experience and resource uh, have to do this but um we want to know that our riders are in the areas we want them to be because we want to be keeping them away from dangerous tunnels from main roads from you know uh, other other areas that, that we don't want our riders to be so it's 
incredibly difficult, complex, um, and really requires a, a good knowledge of the roads of Europe um, to try and plan that in a way that um, your riders will actually be where you want. And, and I will sit there, we will sit there planning out so many different routes to try and work out where TCR riders might be. And then, yeah, it's it's totally different. Again, as you say, for a fixed route race, it's very difficult in a different way. You've got total control over where they go, but then that's its own responsibility. You can't have uh, your route file ending in a in a dead end. You can't have you know ambiguity over which turn to take or um, a GPX track slightly slightly wrong on the on the coordinates. Otherwise, you know it it just ends in chaos and. Um, people lose confidence in the route so yeah it starts off with i think having a good knowledge of good knowledge of the area generally and what what you're looking to create so i've been riding in the balkans um for quite a number of years i think i first rode there about 10 years ago um i was doing a big bike tour with a couple of friends uh from the uk out to the border of china and yeah, we spent we spent a number of weeks riding around the Balkans uh, on our way out there, and I, I immediately loved it. So from then, I've been riding the Balkans at least every um, couple of years. And uh, living in southern Italy, it's it's easy to get the ferry over, um, good kind of good access. And yeah, it's really about knowing knowing those areas to start with. So so having a good sort of mental map of of where the gorgeous mountain ranges are or or a particular amazing piece of double track a balcony road or something or or a brilliant lake whatever it is that you want to take your riders and then and sort of filling that mental map out saying okay i know that we want to go here i know that we want to go here and it's got to end up back here what we got in between um thinking outside the box okay we can't do that border crossing because it's only open to locals or it's um not open at all or, or whatever it is um and and then saying okay that that writes off this entire this entire bit of route back to the drawing board um how else can we get around this bit of kosovo or, or whatever it is so spending hours and hours and hours um looking at maps going out there um wrecking uh, in, in vehicles and on on bikes um finding out that half of it doesn't work coming back again back to the maps um going back out again and yeah sometimes that means really long days on the bike that means getting stuck up a mountain uh, on the cost of a macedonian border um and uh carrying your bike down a scree slope um to, <laughs> to get out of there um you know it, it's uh it's fun but it's uh it's not it's not easy work but it's rewarding it's a bit like the um old school kind of tour de france well Le Keep newspaper journalists going out for Henri de Grange, going looking for these routes. And I forget which one it was, uh, the guy that went over the side of the Telegraph, I think, and, ne- and nearly died in the snow. It was rescued by the locals at like four in the morning <laughs> and uh, then reported back to de Grange that, yes, this was absolutely the route that the riders should take. <laughs> you just think, and it, 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 it was the precursor to the famous, you know, um, Octave Lepise saying, you know, assassins, the tour organisers are assassins. Yeah, have you, have yeah. you had a bit of that from anyone that you've planned races for where they've got in contact afterwards and just been like, mate, seriously, you made us do that? <laughs> Every finish line, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's, um, it, it's, it's difficult because uh, 
we want our races to be safe, accessible, open to as many people as possible. But they do also have to be challenging. And, and you can't have a race with no risk whatsoever. Otherwise, it would defeat the point of doing these races in the first place. People do these races to learn more about themselves, to find their own limits. And ultimately, a lot of people's lives can be changed like that. Um, it's sort of, it, it sounds quite dramatic, but um, people will come to you on the finish line and say, oh my God, you know, this is, this has really opened my eyes. Uh, I'm, I'm quitting my boring job. I'm, um, and, and genuinely changing pe- people change their lives like that. And, and that's, that's not sort of something in our power. That's we can just create the, the best race that we can and, and enable people to find, find out more about themselves. It's, it's kind of, it's a mirror to hold up to yourself, to, to examine yourself and your life and, and pushing people to their absolute limits um physically emotionally mentally uh in the way our races do enables people to do that enables people to learn about themselves so yes we get a lot of feedback on finish lines um saying uh that was the worst thing i've ever done oh my god what 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 were you thinking sending me up there with a road bike um (laughs) but uh in the days and weeks and months that follow that generally changes into a wow that's the best thing I've ever done and I know this is the first off-road race so how is it going to work in terms of having the because in the TCR usually have two cars or something that follow the race how's that going to work in terms of safety vehicles and things like that yeah we're we're doing a lot of um planning uh for for that at the moment the the real challenge it's not a particularly dangerous route but the real challenge is that none of the countries that the race passes through. So it starts in Albania, then goes into uh, Montenegro, Bosnia, Herzegovina, back into Montenegro, Kosovo, and then back into Albania and finishes back where it started in, in Škoda. The real challenge of those countries is that none of them have a functioning search and rescue service. So, you know, you are on your own and we are on, on our own. And some of those, some bits of that route are very inaccessible. So we're working out how we can provide maximum coverage um, possible. Uh, our riders know that when they sign up to, to one of our events, they are responsible for their own safety. Um, they sign a big waiver. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it's just not, um, it's not possible without, uh, without quadrupling the entry fees and, and buying a helicopter um, to provide comprehensive um comprehensive rescue coverage on, on a race like that it's not physically possible but we will have race vehicles out there we're working on um control points uh possibly with additional 4x4 vehicles there um to to increase our coverage of the whole race but you know that's still you, you could easily be somewhere where where we were over a day away um just because of the terrain and the roads and the tracks and everything else but with it being a fixed route at least you know that unless you're the last rider out there, it's not going to be that long until the next rider comes along. So although although you'll be out in the wilderness, um, you won't be entirely alone. There will be other riders out there. And you'll be stronger and all the more better for it, right? <laughs> A few weeks after you've got over it. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. That's that's what we hope. Um, obviously, it is, um, it, it is a potentially serious environment. Um, and uh, yeah, no, no one should underestimate the the 
the high mountains. The route goes up over 2,000 meters in some pretty remote areas. Uh, but if you are sensible, you, you manage risk properly, uh, you have the right equipment, which um, there will be a, a mandatory minimum equipment list, then uh, there's no reason why you can't why you can't take part safely. I mean, on the thing that you just said about respecting the high mountains, like the diligent journalist I am, I immediately headed to Wikipedia to look up the Albanian Alps because I don't know very much about the Balkans. And that's where the name of the race, the Accursed, comes from because they're also called the Accursed Alps, or sorry, the Accursed Mountains. And there's three entries as to why, and I wonder if you might add a fourth with cyclists because one of the entries is a mother with her children lost in the mountains looking for water and then she curses them and that's why they're called the accursed mountains and i can imagine a similar thing possibly befalling uh someone who's you know whose garmin's given up the ghost and they've probably just gone that's ah, probably down here but in all seriousness you know have you i'm not sure if you're allowed to sort of say this for insurance reasons but have you ever lost anybody <laughs> um Every, uh, every every race we have um, people uh, who who come in and out of GPS range and um, who we, we have a team of dot watchers uh, tracking all of our riders at home. We've got um, we've got volunteers who we, we we have a we have a really big team of volunteers who um, are responsible for a number of riders each, um, and we sort of have enough volunteers that maybe they're responsible for seven or eight. Um, each each person so we have uh, a good amount of eyes on people yes it does happen that people go awol for periods of time um but fortunately we've we've always got people back with regards to the yeah the legend of the accursed uh yes we we love the um we love the story of the the woman in the mountains it's um it, not only does it really speak to the harsh environment which as you say really relevant to the race and to ultra cyclists but um i really like the uh the strong female strong female figure there which hopefully will be inspiration to uh some um some really good really good women on bikes who'll come out and do our race there's one aspect that we haven't touched on yet, but is, I guess, kind of crucial to the race, the fact that it's no fly. Andrew, can you explain a little bit about this, what it means? Yes. Uh, again, that's a really nice function of us being not-for-profit um, that can really focus on the things that we believe in that, that matter to us, um, that are pertinent to our values. So we know that this is... Um, potentially not a good commercial decision that's not why we're taking it we we might well get fewer riders on the start line as a result um but asking only riders who can travel overland or oversea to and from the race to to apply means that we can put on this race in the first place we, we've analyzed our carbon footprint um we know that 70% of it comes from rider travel to and from the race. The vast majority of that is air travel. And um, frankly, I, I don't think putting on another race at all would have been sustainable um, or, or something we really wanted to do without without being able to say no, no fly. So it's a difficult place to get to, um, but ultra races aren't easy. And uh, we believe that if you're resourceful enough to do the race, you're resourceful enough to get to Albania. And we want to make sure that we're not excluding people as well. Um, we've got 
a large number of uh, travel grants. We've got 15 uh, low carbon travel grants of 250 pounds each to uh, award to riders who otherwise might struggle to meet the overland travel costs. We're going to be putting on a, um, a long distance coach from Zagreb down to Skoda so that riders can, if riders can make it to Zagreb, which is much, much easier, you can get a bus to Zagreb from Munich um, or you can get the train there from Switzerland and Austria, then you'll be able to hop on our bus and come down to Skoda. Um, and we've had we've had a lot of pushback about about no fly. We've had people asking about whether it's exclusionary and, and whether it's you know really feasible and um, how we can expect people to give up so much time and all that kind of stuff. But for me, it, it's it's pretty simple. The world is burning. The world is literally burning, and we don't have time to mess about anymore. There's there's no point worrying about everything else you want to do because you won't be able to do it if climate change continues in, in the way it is doing. How do you kind of feel about stuff like this personally when you think about your journey, your life spent on two wheels? So from my point of view, you know, I've been working for Cyclist Magazine and doing this podcast for, you know, coming on for 11, 12 years. And once upon a time, I took loads of flights and just didn't think about it. But the flights were always to go and ride my bike, which seemed like a really noble pursuit. And what do we do? Okay, we create entertainment, but our entertainment hopefully invigorates and encourages people to go and cycle. But on the front of our cover, you know, every month is a foreign destination. And that sits, I don't know how, I don't know how to square that circle yet. So partly that's why I'm asking you, please help me um, assuage my own guilt. Um, but yeah, how do you kind of like look at that? And what kind of conversations have you had with your cycling mates? And probably more to the point, people that don't cycle who like to point that finger and go, hang on, it's not, you're not as green as you think, mate, because you, where do you go with your bike? Tell me how you get there. Something that I, that I really try and do personally, because I, I haven't flown for quite a number of years. I, I flew once during the pandemic because Germany wouldn't let me, um, wouldn't let me take a train through uh through germany because i'd recently been in plague island uk um but um but other than that i haven't flown for um quite a number of years and what i try and do personally when i'm you know talking to people on my own social media stuff like that is show people that you can still travel you can still go and ride your bike almost wherever you want obviously some exceptions um and you can do that without flying and you can also enjoy the journey. Um, I think plane travel is all about, it's like apparition or something in Harry Potter. You know, no, no one enjoys doing it. No one, I regret using this metaphor now. No one enjoys doing it. But, but when you, but it's useful to be able to get there quickly. Um, so traveling, like learning to travel slowly again, taking the train, taking the ferry, taking a bus, whatever it is, is an enjoyable way of getting somewhere you get to you get to watch the landscapes go by you get that feeling of having earned being where you are by the time you get there and then you get to put your bike back together and ride it and for me that's so much better than hopping off a plane is there something in the not compromising your principles that also concerns the kind of ethos of ultra distance events like um transcon where We've seen it a lot with gravel, right? Gravel started off as this kind of like, whoa, kind of alternative movement back to the roots of proper cycling because um, it's basically really fun and there's no cars. And then lo and behold, the, the big event, events come along. Unbound turns from being something quite small into something massive. 
and is now just systematically won by basically professional riders or ex-professional riders. Now, the reason they want to compete there is because there's prize money. The reason there's prize money is because there's sponsors. So there's basically money swirling around what was once a spit and sawdust race with 35 people in a little Kansas town. So is there something in the way that you run your races, Lost Dot runs its races, just to keep it the right size? Because I guess, like you say, you need to pay your wages and you need to put on the best, safest race you can. And for that, you need money. But if you have too much money, it becomes too attractive to people that can, maybe they're not winning prize money, but they're certainly getting great sponsorship um, exposure. So how have, you know, is, is that a principle? And how would you kind of govern the growth? Because presumably you get too big, you might attract the wrong crowd. Yeah, I mean, I think our, our safety valve there is the fact that we're a not-for-profit. Um, so we're, we're not incentivized to, to chase more and more money every year. We really just need um, to earn enough, as I say, to, to pay our wages and and then um, and then invest in the stuff that we want to to put back into cycling and back into the courses we believe in. So there's never going to be prize money at the Transcontinental. That is sort of against the ethos of ultra cycling. And you get um, yeah, the, there's been a little bit of interest recently in um in ultra cycling from ex-pros um and even current pros in the form of Lachlan Morton but uh I don't see that becoming a sort of a wider trend because the, these races firstly will never have prize money secondly take so much out of you that you know that that's gonna if, if you take part in TCR that is most of your season taken up by the time you've trained tapered done the race and then recovered it, it's just an enormous effort and maybe maybe for a shorter race uh like a sort of thousand twelve hundred um k race a, a pro could um pro could go along and ride that without disrupting their training too much but still you know you take a couple of nights of, of sleep out um, and put some big efforts in and that's going to knock you back a couple of weeks um so i think i think there are quite a few things um working against that uh and i think that the other thing is that our sort of core audience people maybe concentrate on those um those very fast riders at the front but actually our core audience are a load of really great ordinary people on on bikes um you know the kind of people who are commuting five days a week to their job and that's that's like a large part of their trading and then getting out for a few hours at the weekend all these people who aren't expecting to be able to keep up with the pros, don't want to, aren't about to try and put in that much training, but just want to come along, ride their bikes as fast as they can, um, have the biggest adventure they can, and, and get that incredible experience. You know, it's not about fame or money or or anything like that for them. So that that is our core audience, and I, I think between all those uh, all those factors, the the chances of our corner of the sport and definitely the bits that we have control over becoming overly commercialised are, are pretty slim. Andrew, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It has been lovely chatting to you. Really, really enjoyed that. So thank you. Thank you, guys. Yeah, likewise. Really nice to speak to you both. Andrew, Mark, thank you both very much for coming on the podcast. And thank you very much for giving us two different sort of sides of the industry. You've got the bit that is really, really fun, 
because I really want to go and cycle through mountains off-road on a gravel bike. And I also love the idea that actually there's a prescribed route and I don't have to do the planning because I think the thing with the TCR, oh, I'd love to do it. Number one, I probably couldn't physically. Number two, I think it would just destroy me mentally. But number three, I would just get lost because I wouldn't have a GPX. I'm terrible at working out where to go if I don't really, you know, if there's two different, there's a fork in the road. And then Mark, who gives us the kind of straight dope, it's a bit grittier, but, you know, it's that phrase, isn't it? No grit, no pearl. Pearls are coming, Emma, do you think? I Yeah, and to be honest, from both those conversations, I get the feeling that Mark said that, what, 2023 was the worst year ever for bike industry. But 2024, we've got a really fun-sounding new race. There's loads of new innovation going on in the industry. Things are just, it's on an upward trajectory. At least that's how I feel. Well, that's good because I, I partly I think, you know, positivity begets positivity. So I just want to get that out there that we think things are going to be okay. They genuinely are bit going to be okay, dear listeners. We're putting a metaphorical arm around your shoulders if you feel a little bit, you know, down at the beginning of the year, looking ahead and, and wondering whether or not, you know, your local bike shop's going to have a new pair of Victoria courses in 30 millimeter stock for your new road bike, which hasn't arrived yet. And you're wondering if that's going to be okay and if it's going to pan out all right. And will you have that bike for the summer and the Sportive and the Fred Witten and everything else you might be doing? And the answer is, yes, you will. It's all going to yes, be okay. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. So that's going to be up. We'll get some caps made. Yes, you will caps. <laughs> I can see it now. <laughs> oh, but yeah, in summary, things are looking up. We'll go with that. Right. Until next week, Emma, thank you. Until and next week. Listeners, thank you also. Like a lot of riders, I've tried loads of training plans, but I often find them too rigid and complicated. But join is a bit different. You put in your availability to train each week and your goal, like riding the ATAP, for example, and then join reverse engineers a training plan specific to your needs. But the really smart thing is how Join adapts your training plan as you go. So if you miss a session or you end up doing like a recovery ride or it's an interval day, then Join retailers your training plan so you can still hit your goal. It's really simple to use and workout sync to everything from Garmin's and Wahoo's to Strava and Zwift. Or you can pair Join to a power meter or smart trainer for instant workouts. Join comes as an app. And right now, listeners of The Cyclist Podcast can save a third on a six-month join subscription. So that's six months for the price of four. Just check out the link in our show notes and start training with join.